Well, good morning, church. Once again, happy Mother's Day to everyone. Everyone's here because of a mother. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you do so, I just wanted to comment briefly on something that we're going to be talking about this morning, which is worries. And um, I can say, having been in the position that many of you in this room have been in, and that uh, my son was in this morning, when you're running AV for a church and things begin to fall apart, there's an inordinate level of worry that creeps in. Uh, this morning, the connection between the phone and the computer wasn't working, but uh, probably about 25 years ago, I remember I was doing that very same job for my church in Northern Virginia, but this was before uh, modern technology, so I was the slide boy. So I sat up on stage with the projector and the transparencies, and I had a stack of them, and I would put them on there. And I remember one morning, I got a little overzealous, and I put it on there, and it slid right off. And down through the risers that I was sitting on, and I turned, and George, who was the worship leader at the time, George wore a white jacket, and we called him the Mad Professor, not to his face. And he had these big, thick glasses and this white jacket, and he was leering at me. And I had to climb down under the risers as he just continued to play these slow, mournful chords. I came back up covered in dust and put it back on there and talk about worry. But I survived. And you too, children, when you tap the buttons and they don't project the right words, you will survive. And there are greater worries in life than that. And we'll talk about that this morning. But read with me from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, you care for us. You care for us this morning, not because anything that we do. You don't care for us because of what we do well, using the talents, the skills, the genetics that you've given us. Nor do you love us out of pity because of what we don't do well, our sin and the sin that we inherit from our father Adam. But you love us because of your son. And as David mentioned earlier, the love that we receive from you is a love that proceeds from an inter-Trinitarian communion of perfect love. It's something that we can't understand. It's something that we can't grasp. It's something that we see head on, but we also know that it extends beyond the periphery of the vision of our own hearts and our own minds. But in your spirit, through your Son, because of your word, we are able to grasp it in a sufficient manner that we are able to contemplate the depth of the love and the care that you have for us. So this morning, Lord, minister to us as you speak to us through your word. Reassure us of that care. Reassure us of that love, even in the midst of our anxieties, our cares, and our worries. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, church, this morning we're going to be talking about what I like to call a cross-stitch verse. So this is the kind of verse that you might have up on your wall, that an ambitious point in your life when you went to Joanne or Hobby Lobby and you found a little Christian craft and you cross-stitched it and you put it up and it's been there. Or maybe it's, in, it's written on the bottom of, a, of a, a base of a precious moments figurine. Or perhaps it's on the cover of your Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's just a handful of verses that fall into this category. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Check. You know, uh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Check. You know, um, if this nation humbles itself, I will heal its land. That's a more masculine one, right? Uh, check. Not a lot of cross stitches. Usually something with an eagle on it, right? Um, this morning, verse 7, falls into that category. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I don't mean to demean that verse nor the noble art of cross-stitch. It's that sometimes these verses are, are so common because they find their way into Christian kitsch and they find their way into common sayings that we not only lose sight of the full thrust of this verse, but we also lose sight of the context. We lose sight of precisely what is intended and what is meant in these passages. And so this verse, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. A quotation from Psalm 55 that is used not only here by Peter, but elsewhere in the New Testament, is a passage that's worth understanding because none of us here is free from anxieties. None of us here are free from cares or worries or concerns. Different translations render this word differently. And before we get to verse 6, I just want to touch on this idea that we see in verse 7 of casting all your anxieties on him. Now, I think it's so essential that the smallest word, or one of the smallest words, in this sentence is a word that we grasp here at the forefront of this message. Because I don't want any of us sitting for the next half an hour, 45 minutes, or going out of here this morning to the rest of our day thinking that this doesn't apply to us because my problems are small. That this doesn't apply to us because my worries are colloquially called first world problems. That there's other people in our congregation, there's other people in our community, there's other people in our world that have much bigger problems than I do. And that's true. I mean, let's not, let's not mince words. That is true. There are people that have bigger problems problems than you. But that's not what this verse is concerned about. What is being communicated to us here is that we are to cast all our anxieties on him. So you may even have a spectrum of anxieties within your own life at this very moment. And every one of those things from the very smallest concern about how you might not have used the right seasoning on the meat that you're going to grill today all the way up to the most significant concerns within the body that we are aware of. David lifted up Sarah this morning. And in that context, your grill marinade, your problems, maybe the bill that you're a day late on, seems insignificant. And in one sense, it is insignificant. But in another sense, the fact that it is known by you, it is worried about by you, and it is known by the sovereign God of the universe who desires you to share that with him, in that sense, it is not insignificant. 
So we're working almost at two levels. We understand that even in our own life, and certainly in the life of our church community, our community, and our world, there is a spectrum of worries, anxieties, and concerns. But at the same time, God sees them all. And he cares for us, and so he desires that we cast them on him. We'll talk about what that means in in a moment. But I think it's important to acknowledge that our anxieties or our cares or our worries or our concerns, they are meant to be given to God. The original audience was meant to give all of their anxieties to God and consider what their situation was, consider what their circumstance was. One of the common themes that we've talked about frequently as we've gone through 1 Peter and we'll touch on in these closing weeks of our study is the idea of suffering. Now, most, most theologians and historians don't think that Peter's audience was experiencing that significant lions in Colosseums persecution that the church would experience in the coming decades. But it was still a disenfranchisement of their culture. Because if they were Gentile, moving away from that culture, they were having to leave the, the way that everybody else did life in their community. If they were Jews leaving that culture, converting to Christianity, they were leaving home and family and a millennia-old tradition of how they did things. So at the bare minimum, the anxieties and worries and sufferings and trials that were being lived out by Peter's original audience were the kind of sufferings and trials and worries that we go through. It may very well be People look at me different because I do different things as a Christian. It may be that people don't respond to me in the same way that they respond to other people because of positions I hold in our culture and because I hold to ultimate truth as derived from Scripture. And so we we remember that Peter's original audience was dealing with suffering, trials, persecutions, And then, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, kind of the stuff that you deal with just as being a part of a church. How do I submit to leadership as someone in leadership? How do I serve those who are under me and who I am serving well? Those kind of things are the things that are in the immediate context that Peter is dealing with. But I think it's also worth pointing out that in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is taking a verse from Psalm 55 and applying it to the present circumstances of his audience. And I think it's worth touching on that for a brief moment. Here's just a couple of verses from Psalm 55. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. So when we're talking about that spectrum, where would you think that things end in the the original um, context of Psalm 55. My heart is in anguish, the terrors of death, fear and trembling, and horror overwhelming me. That's a pretty significant situation to be in. You take one of those things, and if that thought has raced past your mind anytime this week or anytime in recent history, then you have been suffering a severe anxiety, worry, or care. But it is in that precise context that we are commanded to cast our anxieties on him. So once more, and I want to repeat this because I think that we we need to be aware of this, 
both as we internalize this and then hopefully as we somehow bring this message to hope to our family, to our church community, and to our community in the coming weeks and months. There is no worry, no anxiety that we do not bring before God. Nothing too small. And so, boys and girls, that means that your little school problems, maybe even your little week-to-week tiffs with people in your neighborhood that, you know, everyone becomes best friends and then worse enemies and best friends over and over again, hopefully that's not what happens. But those are the kind of things that if that's troubling you, just because there's wars going on in the world, just because there's severe accidents and, and terrible things that we hear about in the news, it doesn't mean that God does not want to hear these things. If they trouble you, then he wants you to bring them to him. And it's interesting, this word, he says, cast all your anxieties on him. So if you've ever gone fishing, you know there's some people that can fish well and there are some people that cannot fish well. Now, fishing well has nothing to do with catching fish. That's completely coincidental. It's incidental. No one is a good fisherman. They're just in the right place at the right time. There's more to it than that. And those of you that are consider yourself good fishermen can take me to task. But oftentimes, there's people that catch a lot of fish, and they are not good fishermen. Their tackle box is not ordered well. They're not dressed right. They don't have on the tweed jacket and the wicker creel and the fancy hat with the flies in it. They look like they've rolled out of bed. And then they go to cast, and it's some haphazard you know, a wind up and somehow the lure ends up in the water and the fish doesn't care about anything that's happened up to that point. It just is content that there is a bobber with a worm and a hook underneath it. And that idea of a haphazard lob or cast is kind of what we have in picture here. In fact, you could render this idea of casting in verse 7 as thrusting or throwing. I think this is important also for us to understand, that God doesn't need you to formulate some beautiful Puritan poetry, some sort of eloquent articulation when you bring your prayers and your worries before him. In fact, baked into his spirit indwelling you is the precise mechanism by which we bring our worries and anxieties to him. Having his spirit within us, it cries out to us in groanings too deep for words, it says in Romans, and so that you don't even have to really explain and articulate the problems that you have. You just have to throw yourself towards God. You thrust yourself towards God. And this may even be physically. This is why people lay down sometimes. This is why people raise their hands This is why they bury their heads in their hands in prayer. It's a physical posture reflecting the hopelessness that we might feel within us, that we don't know how to utter our worries, our anxieties, and cares because they may be so overwhelming or they may be so confusing. We don't have a way to explain the way we feel about our problems the problems that we perceive in the world, and the discordant nature between the ideals of Scripture and our experiences. But with the Holy Spirit in us, we don't need to put a bow on it. We don't need to church it up. We just have to thrust it, throw it, cast it in God's direction. And those prayers are beautiful prayers because those prayers are authentic prayers. 
Those prayers are prayers that reflect a heart that is contrite and knows that God is the only source of solace and that Christ is the only avenue for redemption. And so if we're holding it, why hold on to it? Why try to solve it yourself? Why try to go to the bookstore and find the three simple steps for taking care of this problem? Why try to use the world's techniques that recycle over and over and over again? But most importantly, why hold on to something that you know that he knows that he wants you to give to him? That thing in your heart, in your mind, or that thing that will come to heart or will come to mind in the coming minutes and hours and days is the precise thing that he wants you to give to him. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too large. If we have the right perspective of who God is, of his sovereignty, of his omniscience, he already knows about it. And so as an exercise of faith, as an exercise of dependence, as an exercise of worship and acknowledging his sovereignty, then we give that to him. We cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. We do this because God cares for us. We do this in the context of a personal covenantal relationship. We don't do this as if we were petitioning some impersonal force. I think sometimes there are prayers that are offered up because there's this intellectual assent to the idea that God is out there and he's probably the only one who can take care of this problem because it's so big. And so I'm just going to throw it up there because nothing else is working and that's kind of the direction that my cares and worries ought to go. Now, in one sense, that's better than trying to solve it yourself. But in another sense, that is completely disregarding the nature of the relationship between a believer and his God. It's completely discounting and disregarding the nature of the covenantal relationship that exists between Christ and Christians. And what do I mean by that? Well, a covenantal relationship, something that is in the heart and the name of our church itself, is a relationship where there is relationship. It is not just two things that simply sit adjacent to one another. It is two things that are enmeshed, two things that are dovetailed, two things that fit together in a way that is defined, in this instance, by God. And so God, like a, like a, a you know, tab, or like slot B, and us like tab A, fit in perfectly, and he says that this close union, this perfect junction, this perfect juxtaposition of transcendent God and finite fallen human, this is the relationship in which I want you to bring your cares before me. And we do this, we understand this, knowing that that God who's covenanted joined himself to us because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and through his Holy Spirit, we are able to cast our cares on him because he cares for us and he has promised that he will take care of us in this situation. So much of God's covenant with his people are the blessings that he abundantly pours out upon us. First and foremost, predicated on the salvation, 
so much predicated on and built on the atonement made by Jesus Christ. But our salvation doesn't end there. It then is a salvation, and it's the process of sanctification that touches every aspect of our lives. There was a promise of this hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came into the world in the book of Jeremiah. So often we see in the prophets these anticipations of a new covenant, this anticipation of a world being made right progressively until Christ comes again. One of these pictures of the new covenant we see in Jeremiah 32, where he says, where from, from God to Jeremiah, he says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. On, it, on, on, on its own, just that sentence, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That is a presence, present reality that we live in. John actually quoted this morning from Hosea in, in this idea of that you were not a people, and now you are a people, defined by your relationship by God. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, I will give them one heart and one way, and they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And then hear this church, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That's the reality that we live in. The covenant that God has made with his son, Jesus Christ, has given us and blessed us is a covenant in which he will not turn away from doing good to us. We cast our anxieties on him because he's promised he will do good things for us. It goes on to say, listen to this, this is beautiful. God says, I will rejoice in doing them good. He cares for us to the point that it makes him happy. Now, that's anthropomorphism. That's taking a feeling that we know, and it's thrusting it up and to God, but it's, it's right there in the text. God will rejoice in doing good for us. As God does good, as we give him our anxieties, and he remediates them in whatever way he seems fit, it may be removing it, or it may be giving us a pathway through it, we don't have that sort of uh, ability. We don't have that sort of cachet to determine which one it is. But whatever it is, God rejoices in giving us a pathway through our difficulty. We cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. But notice that that's verse 7. Verse 6 comes before it. Verse 7 is very easy to kind of grasp. I mean, given we talked about a lot of ways, we could probably take it in wrong directions. But verse 7, it's, it's wonderful because it's a, it's a very passive thing. I just kind of lump my anxieties off of God. If, if, if I have worries, I just kind of incline myself in his direction, and he will, he will do something. And that's true. But there's a greater depth to it than that. There's greater instruction to it than that. And it's something that takes this cross stitch verse and it makes it a little bit more, it makes us have to pay attention to it a little bit more. Because notice how it starts in verse 6. Humble yourself. This is not our favorite thing to do. We don't like humbling ourselves. We don't like it as humans, first and foremost. 
one of our first sins is pride. When, when, mothers, your children say no. What is that? It's pride. I know better. Even as a tiny baby, I know better. Oh, no, there's these, all these nature things and nurture things. No, it's sin. That's what it is. It's, and it's the sin of pride. No, I'm six months old and I know better than you. No, I'm 40 years old and I know better than you. Humble yourselves. It's a, pro- a human problem. It's also a cultural problem. It's a problem we struggle, struggle with as a culture. The, the, the gross individualism of our culture makes us not want to humble ourselves. We're all beautiful, unique snowflakes, just like everyone else. We all have a voice where all everyone's vote matters. Everyone's opinion matters. And again, in one sense, that's true. But... That mentality makes shifting gears into humility a little bit difficult. The idea of humbling ourselves literally has this picture in our mind of causing oneself to be low. If you've ever caught your dog doing something it shouldn't do, you see this. The ears go down, the head goes down, the eyes go up. It's humbling itself. Even an animal that was just digging through the garbage understands what it looks like to humble itself. Let's be at least that good, shall we? we the idea of humbling ourselves means to causing ourselves to be low. Now, notice why are we humbling ourselves in this situation? There's other types of humility we've talked about in 1 Peter. The humility that we have between one another in the different relationships and contexts that we have in the church and in the home and in the state. But here we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves because we are coming to our mighty God. We also humble ourselves. Well, let's, let's go back to that. We humble ourselves becoming, because we're coming to our mighty God. We ought to have a posture of humility, even with the familiarity that we have with the word of God. The familiarity we have with a context like this of worship, if we've been doing this for 10 or 20 or 70 years, we ought to have a certain familiarity when we come before God because we know all the promises, because we know the nature of the covenantal relationship that we just explained, but there ought to still be humility in that because he is still a sovereign and mighty God. We have that close relationship with him. We are able to call him Father but he is still the father of all creation. He is still the one who is able to still the seas. He is still the one who brought the world into being by a word of his voice. He is still the one who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind when Job lifted his head slightly from that incredibly humble posture and God brought him back down low. We remember that we are coming to our mighty God, but we also humble ourselves because of how we come to the Father. And this is something that we ought to always remember, something that is baked into the idea of confession, something that is is tied up in the idea of the Lord's Supper that we take every week. It's this idea that the fact that we only come to the Father through the Son. We only come to the Father through the Son. So that's not in this verse. In this verse, it says, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But in Hebrews, it talks about where Jesus is. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So where is Christ today? Christ is embodied in a glorified body, ascended, and at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in your hearts through his spirit, but Jesus himself is in his body, his glorified body, still bearing his wounds at the right hand of the Father. And so in one way, both literally, physically, in the the physical place that Jesus is, but also spiritually as we go to him, we cannot come to the Father. We cannot approach him with our requests. We cannot cast our cares, our anxieties, and worries on him without first encountering the risen Christ. And so with that in mind, it is impossible to cast our cares, cast our worries, cast our anxieties on him without first seeing the risen Christ with wounds in his hands, wounds in his side, wounds in his feet that were placed there so that you can bring those anxieties to the Father. If that doesn't humble us, there's a problem. If that doesn't humble us, then it ought to. Understanding that our very prayers are only brought to a righteous and holy God because the righteous died for the unrighteous. And he sits making intercession for us today. There should only be humility when we see his glory. We should only have humility when we see the remnants of his humiliation that have since been exalted. So we humble ourselves. We cause ourselves to be low. We don't demand of God. Even if he's promised it, we don't demand of him. We humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I want to spend a few minutes here, church, to make some specific applications. The idea of humility under God is not false humility. It's not, this, it's not a posture that we take simply so that we can kind of get into a, a prayer posture because that's some sort of formula by which God hears our prayer. Nor is it the humility of human brokenness. Sometimes being self-deprecating, the idea, just talking badly about yourself to others or talking badly about yourself to yourself is a form of false humility. He is God and he can dictate what humility looks like. Now, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and understanding that he even dictates what humility looks like. And we also understand that with his covenant, with us, his people, he desires us to come to him with our anxieties. Now, church, this means that we bring him our lowercase a anxieties and our uppercase a anxieties. Now, this word anxiety in our culture has a number of connotations. There is the anxiety of, I'm not sure how the next few minutes are going to go. And that's a legitimate anxiety. We talked earlier about this spectrum of worries that we may bring before God. But there's also the kind of anxiety that is lingering, the kind of anxiety that doesn't go away in a few minutes, the kind of anxiety that burdens and troubles and debilitates people. Now, 
This is something that the church has not done a good job of talking about. Anxiety, depression, other mental health issues are things that the church has, for whatever reason, stepped aside more often than not, or kind of flippantly said, pray about it, and it'll get better. Now, we don't have the time, nor is this text the best text to go through, to give a robust treatment and theology of the idea of mental health, but I do believe that it touches on it in a very particular and important way, and it gives us a very good first step. There's a few kind of presuppositions that we need to understand and need to remember before we think about this, before we think about anxiety, whether it is that lowercase a anxiety or it's the capital A diagnosable kind of anxiety. We remember that we are God's creation, all of us, body and soul. We, our thoughts belong to God, and the neurotransmitters that exist in our head, moving chemicals from one part of our brain to another part of our brain at a microscopic level, were designed by God and belong to him. And furthermore, the connection between that biochemical reaction and our thoughts, which we don't completely understand as people, not just me as a guy who doesn't understand it, even if somebody knew about it, but as we don't understand it as people, God is the God of that as well. God is a God of our body. God is a God of our soul. And he's the God of how those things work together in a way that modern science has not and probably to the same degree that David brought up this morning that there's some things that moms and dads and adults don't understand will probably never understand. And even if it does, God is the God of all of it. It all exists under the sovereignty of his creative act. It all exists, as we read earlier, uh, about Christ's sustaining of his creation. That is a primary and essential presupposition that we have to bring to the table as we think about anything, but as we think about the way we think, the way we think well, the way we think poorly, the results and the consequences of things that happened in our life, either organically, because of the way that maybe our brain chemistry is, or environmentally, our own sins, the sins of someone else that have impacted us, or just the sin of the world. These are the causes of both lowercase a anxieties, temporal things that we get over, and capital A anxieties, the kind of thing that is perpetual that people deal with time and time again. There is no denying that both of these things exist. But as a Christian, as a biblical Christian, we also cannot deny that these exist under the sovereignty of God. And we cannot deny that he is the source of healing, that he is the source of remediation. Now, does he use means? Absolutely, he uses means. We can't take the, again, the, the, the approach that we just pray about it and it goes away. None of us believes that. We all take Advil for a headache. We all go to the doctor to get taken care of. We all rely on everything from vitamins to a healthy diet, so fresh air and exercise. So we acknowledge and understand that God uses means to take care of physical and mental matters. The means that he may use are counsel. He may use medication. He uses coping skills. He uses community resources. All of these things are important. But he is the source. So when we cast our anxieties on him, that may mean that we then take a pill. If we cast our anxieties on him, 
that may mean that we then go and meet with our counselor. If we cast our anxieties on him, the next step may be coping skills that you have learned and that you have employed. But the base presupposition that is beneath that, that Scripture mandates, dictates, exhorts, and encourages us to take is that we first humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He is the one that takes all of those things and makes them work. He is the one who takes those things and makes them work even for the person that doesn't believe. A psychotropic medication doesn't work outside of the sovereign hand of God. It is because God has made people a way that he has made them, and he has made scientists to be able to create things to work in his universe to bring things together. For Christians, we have the added benefit, the ultimate benefit of being able to humble ourselves before God so that when we engage in utilizing these means, medication, counseling, coping skills, environmental community resources, that we are able to do that humbly acknowledging that they come from God and that any healing they bring comes from his sovereign hand. Church, there's so much that we can say about this. There's so many things that need to be said about this, and this is a a very kind of cursory and brief and in some ways crass treatment of a significant issue that the church needs to pay significant attention to. But when he calls us to cast all our anxieties on him, there's no asterisk. There's not things that would pop up 2,000 years later, 1,500 years later, 1,000 years later, something that is coming 1,000 years in the future that is not underneath this quick exhortation for a church going through suffering and trials and tribulations. If we acknowledge the word of God is sufficient, if we acknowledge God himself is sovereign, then we can bring our lowercase a anxieties our uppercase A anxieties, and bring them to him, then utilizing whatever, whoever, however he sees fit to help us through today and tomorrow. But humbling ourselves, church, means that we have to identify with the one we are humbling ourselves before. One of the greatest dangers in our culture today is having an identity of something that is fleeting or something that is sinful. We must identify with Christ. You are not an anxious Christian. You are not a depressed Christian. You are not a Christian who is a problem. You are a Christian who has a problem because all of us have problems, but we are first and foremost in Christ. That is our identity. Any diagnosis, any struggle, any problem that you have is legitimate, is real. It may even show up on a blood sample. But that is secondary to the transcendent identification that you now have when you have Christ. Jesus doesn't say that, there, that, that you know, he doesn't get rid of, of ethnicity. He doesn't get rid of station in life. Paul, when talking about this idea, he he doesn't get rid of the idea of Jew and Gentile and male and female and Greek and barbarian. He just says that our first identity is Christ. And then we work through everything else after that. 
In Romans chapter 6, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, church, hopefully you never thought that that newness of life meant every one of your problems was going to go away. Because if that's the case, then we were sold a false bill of goods. But we have been given a newness of life so that when we encounter life's problems, physical, mental, relational, environmental, whatever they may be, that we have a new way of seeing reality and that we actually live in a new reality. We see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into our lives so that physical sickness, it, we know it is going away. We know that it is something that will be removed, that the tears in our eyes, whether they be from momentary traumatic situations or they become a chronic situation that we have to endure throughout our years, we know that Christ is in the process of wiping every one of them out of our eyes. When we identify with him, we become Christ's. We are Christians. And everything else that we endure, our sufferings, our trials, our anxieties, whatever they may be, are going to one day disappear. And, church, we can be confident that the endurance that we live as we work through them, knowing that they might not go away in this life. There's no promise of that. Our physical illness, our mental issues, our relationship problems, there is no guarantee that in this fallen world they are going to go away. And to promise somebody something other than that it goes beyond the bounds of Scripture. But the promise that is sure and the promise that is true is that Christ is putting all of his enemies under his feet. He's doing that right now. And the thing that plagues you, the anxieties that plague you, the worries that plague you, the cares that plague you, are things that Christ is putting under his feet. None of those things are going to be carried over into the kingdom of God as it comes in fullness. None of those things are going to be sanctified and be worn around us as we move into the, into the new heavens and the new earth. Those things are the things that Christ is in the process of trampling under his feet. That's a blessed assurance. That's a wonderful promise. And we walk in a newness of life, acknowledging that is what is coming. And so we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he is the source of any means by which we overcome our problems and our worries and our anxieties. We also humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time, it says in verse 6, he may exalt you. Church, his deliverance is in his time. There's no simple three-step process to make things better. It's not true for our anxieties. It's not true for our, our sins. It's not true for the ills of our world. It's not true for the problems that you have in your relationships. There's no three easy things you can do. There's no eight easy things you can do. There's no hundred easy things you can do. There's no amount of time where you can simply bite down on a leather belt and count to 20 and it'd be over. There's nowhere you can drive on this planet where it's going to be better. At the proper time, at God's time, 
he may exalt you. And so while everything I said about, about deliverance not being immediate is true, salvation is now. And his salvation includes lifting you up. In Christ, we live in this dichotomy of both being humbled and being lifted up. It's, this, it's the peace that passes understanding. In the whirlwind of our anxieties, our worries, our cares, our troubles, our sufferings, our trials, our persecutions, all of those things, we have peace that passes understanding. We are humble, but we're lifted up. And Christ is the picture of this. Christ, in his most humbled state, was also in the most lifted up state. Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father today, the very one who we go through to cast our cares and worries and burdens and trials, is lifted up, but he still bears the scars of his humility. We cannot consider ourselves better than him. We must have the humble dependency of Jesus, who, although, although being in the form of God, did not require equality with God, something to be grasped. We must have the humble dependency of Jesus, knowing the inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption established before the foundation of the world, still praying so as he sweated as like drops of blood in Gethsemane. We must have the humble dependence of Christ when we encounter difficult situations. But we also have that covenant expectation of Jesus. That covenant expectation of Jesus, though while he was on the cross saying, Father, why are you forsaking me? My God, my God. But then he says, it is finished. Knowing that this is the way in which redemption was coming. Knowing that through his death, many would be brought to the Father. We humble ourselves, church, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. These are wonderful promises. They're rich promises. They're promises that are deep, yet they are also promises that are so sweet that if you simply touch your finger to the top of them, God will reward you in a great sweetness when you taste it. Leaning on him, trusting in him, not trusting in the world, not trusting in your, 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 yourself, these are the things where he will display the sweetness and the richness, the depth and the width of his promises. That's something that no circumstance, that's something that this world cannot, will not take away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder, something that ought to be first and foremost in our hearts and minds. We were reminded that you receive our anxieties because you care for us. Lord, convict us of that. That if we're trying to fight through the little stuff and only give you the big stuff, or, heaven forbid, fight through all of it, that you desire that we give these things to you so that you may help us because you rejoice in helping us. And you've helped us in the greatest way possible already by sending your son at the proper time 
But Lord, give us humility. Let us not flippantly see these things in the text and treat them as if they're owed to us, like we're cashing in our chips for blessings. Lord, give us the great humility to understand and count the cost that was required to be in covenant relationship with you. And as we come to your son at your right hand, through your spirit, who he has sent to live within us, minister to us in all of our anxieties, in all of our concerns, worries, cares, and troubles. We thank you that you have given us so many things. Something as simple as medication, something as relational as counseling, something as helpful in the moment as coping skills. But whatever we use, remind us where they come from. Remind us where healing comes from. Remind us what ultimate healing and our identity looks like. Conformity into your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.